Religion for me is nothing other than outside of psychologically speaking, a process of sort of self-development. Who the hell, who am I? What am I? Why do I matter in this world? What is this? It's this whole notion of individuation, right? Like young and home and had it right. Like, yo, it's figuring out how to like really become an individual, right? Um, and so I think where we get it wrong sometimes is when we try to be reductionistic and we try to diminish how other people do that. Just because I don't need necessarily uh, the evangelical black Protestant tradition I came out of don't anymore doesn't mean I have the right or I should negate or try to diminish those who still find it valuable. Hello, welcome to The Sacred Speaks. This is John Price, your host. I um, a lot to, to get into in this conversation. So I want to uh, speak music first, and um, there's just a bit of information on this. First, the theme music to the podcast is from Modern Nations. You can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. And the music today, I'm, I'm excited. It's... Uh, it's an artist I've I've wanted to use for a long time, and um, it was a really good reason to use it today. Years ago, I was watching a documentary um, created by Anna DuVernay from the Figures of Speech, which is an incredible hip hop group whom I, I've I've really enjoyed for a long time. Uh, back in two thousand eight, she put out a, a documentary called This Is the Life. It's about the Good Life Cafe in Los Angeles, California, where open mic nights were put on, and it was a apparently just a real center point for creativity and expression. It was where artists could come and kind of experiment in front of folks. Each artist would play, uh, would would do a song, and um, they'd get some immediate feedback. I highly recommend the documentary. Again, it's This Is the Life. And uh, I, in it, I found not only figures of speech, but this, uh, this amazing artist um, called Abstract Rude, and uh, the group is Tribe Unique. So the music today is from then. There's a little clip you heard earlier from, uh, from that album, and, uh, and I, I have an iTunes link um, in the liner notes. But look up Abstract Rude and Tribe Unique, and it is good. I think it's abstractrude.com is, uh, is his site. Great music. I'm going to play a full song at the end of the episode. Um, and it, it's it, the song really ties in a lot of themes that uh, today's participants and I talk about. Okay, I'll get to Cleve. Cleve Tinsley is the, the incredible man I'm talking to today. And I'll, I'll read his bio. Cleve Tinsley IV is an ordained Baptist minister, scholar of religion and African-American culture, and community social justice strategist based in Houston, Texas. 
He's currently the co-managing partner of Project Curate. And look that up at projectcurate.org, a nonprofit social impact enterprise and intersectional justice collaborative. And he's also a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Religion at Rice University. Cleve's research focus, excuse me, Cleve's research focuses on critical understandings of the wider social, scientific, and historical approaches to the study of religion in general and African American religion in particular. And this this really is um, the the intersection of a lot of what we talk about today. That that religion in general and Af- African American religion in particular. His current research explores the relationship between religion, black freedom struggles, and African-American formulations in America, and argues for more, um, more expansive sociological approaches to study the meaning and the nature of black religious identity, given the complexity of religion and spirituality in the lives of African-Americans today. Cleve also works as a research fellow in the Religion and Public Life program at Rice, and prior to his doctoral training, earned his Master's of Divinity at Princeton Theological Seminary. Cleve has worked in the past as a pastor and consultant for several churches and educational nonprofit organizations in the U.S. and in the South and on the East Coast. So a couple of, um, of important things to note is, I, I think as I'm, as I'm thinking about uh, this conversation and listening back to it, I'm reflecting on the, the absolute need to uh, to have meaningful conversations. I went into this conversation with a curiosity and excitement because l- literally Cleve and I met about 10 minutes before we started to record. And we meandered through and I, I learned a lot from him. And I'm deeply appreciative for his academic and intellectual work uh, but selfishly, I <laughs> I explored curiosity, uh, thankfully, and I also got a friend. <laughs> so <laughs> I think this is one of the coolest um, endeavors to to converse with people in a in a in a meaning making, meaning creating kind of way. So thank you, Cleve. I'm I'm grateful for your willingness. And I'm grateful for the work that you do. And I'm grateful to Matthew Russell for introducing me to, uh, to Cleve. I interviewed Matthew in episode 25, and these are the guys who created Project Curate, and they're up to some really wonderful things. So also check that episode out, but you can learn more about them on their website. The other thing that I want to note is that... Um, we had an anchor point, uh, a fascinating and important anchor point, and I referenced a, a personal story. We had about 10 minutes to talk beforehand, and Cleve and I, I, I really kind of created, at least it came to me to do this podcast after I watched a documentary with Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre um, that basically explored my upbringing musically. It's called The Defiant Ones. It's on HBO, and it's a three-part series. I highly recommend it. Um, but but NWA was an important group for me, um, and and also for Cleve. We're around the same age, and we, we, we kind of circle around this signifier. Um, given our, our, our different um, upbringings, NWA meant different and, interestingly enough, similar things. 
as well to both of us. So that was fun to bring that kind of anchor point into our lives and for me to think about how, um, you know, we're listening to the same music, but we're having different understandings of the music given the kind of cultural standpoint that we're coming from and how valuable those kinds of signifiers and anchor points are in generating conversation and deeper relationship. Uh, I think that's it. Uh, if you're looking for information on the podcast, I'm trying to keep it up to date. I've got a lot more to add. I've got a, a lecture series that I am going to post soon on the body and consciousness. And, um, and, and if you go to the website, thesacredspeaks.com, I, uh, I lead a retreat with my wife on uh, kind of the intersection of, kind of religion, Jungian psychology, and Eastern philosophy. She is a practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine. And so there, there's this wonderful intersection where the, it's, a, it's a non-dual, dual structure, which is the body and the mind, and how we both kind of interact with those um, landscapes. And uh, for the for the purpose of, of growth and healing for the people with whom we work, so the retreat is going to be in uh, on the coast in South Texas in January. I think it's January seventeenth. I need to get this right if I'm going to talk about it. Um, yeah, January seventeenth through the twentieth. Uh, it's called Discovering Wholeness, and you can look that up at wholenessretreat.com. And uh, on the Sacred Speaks, the sacredspeaks.com, there is a link um, for more information on that. It's going to be a lot of uh, depth work, but also um, yoga, film, meditation, acupuncture. <laughs> uh, and it's right on the beach. So uh, it's it, it, at night, you sleep with the door open and you hear the waves. Okay. Uh, I urge you all to have meaningful conversations and um, just just call somebody you've been wanting to talk to. And as my friend and colleague Pittman, who is a participant on this podcast, episode five, as he says, uh, if I call you and ask you for a drink, it's not because I'm thirsty. It's because I want to hang out with you. I want to consume what we're going to produce in the conversation. And I feel that way with uh, with Cleve. <laughs> I've already asked him for that drink. Uh, okay, we'll leave it there, and I, I wish you all well. Thanks for being here, and thank you, Cleve. All right, now we're going. Um, Great. You comfy? I am, I Good. am. Good. I am. Yeah. Uh, Cleve, I'm so happy to meet you. Man, it's an honor to be here. I am. It's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be in this space, honestly. I uh, think uh, today I'll be thinking about a lot of stuff I hadn't thought of in a long time and hopefully be able to connect a lot of dots that I'm still maybe still trying to figure out, at least psychologically, intellectually, however you want to oh, say too. that, right? So, um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's good to be here, man. It's good to talk about uh, what motivates my own type of religious spiritual struggle, how that has been shaped in African-American communities in particular, but also in um, sort of three spaces in particular, the academy, 
my own community and what I refer to as under-resourced communities, not necessarily um, disadvantaged communities. Um, because I think when you say stuff like under-resourced, it puts back the question of saying, why are these communities under-resourced and why is there such a thing as uh, these different communities? I'm from a small area, uh, Gulfport, Biloxi, Mississippi, where I was reared most of my time until I was about 16 or so before I went away to college. And so I've always had this interest on how folks who, uh, for the most part, uh, who are at the bottom of the social matrix struggle to make their life meaningful and contentful, right? How notions of God ar arose around that, but then more than that, um, how they really dealt with the limits on their life options. And so, um, of course, that's a natural struggle for, for bloke, folks of African descent in this country, but also I just been, uh, I guess for myself, trying to make meaning and considering my mother and the significant attachments in my own life, um, these connections were always questions I had largely. Why my mother believed in a God I couldn't really understand. Two, what did this God have to do with the struggle of my community in the late 80s and 90s growing up in a um, under-resourced community where we had different ways that we made meaning, whether it was smoking a joint, listening to Bob Marley, listening to NWA. Uh, and then my own sort of mystic soul in that. I have these experiences. I remember um, driving down Highway 90 in the Gulf Coast region, and me and my friends are drinking uh, some like champagne and smoking joint at the same time. And I turned to him and say, man, I'm having an experience right now. Have you ever thought about how amazing you are as a person. I think we some of the baddest motherfuckers around. Have you thought about that? He's like, clear you just high. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I've always had these kind of experiences, even since a little kid. Like I would have these experiences of reflecting about the nature of who I am, uh, what, the, what the meaning of my own black existence is and what the significance is for that particular place and time. And so that started me on a journey, man. I started out in engineering, and I moved to Houston first when I was 17 years old as a cooperative student in engineering. And while I was doing that, I figured, I learned rather that uh, there were other questions that were stirring me. And I just had this burden to, to my own community figures like Martin Luther King, all these um, sort of cultural objects that were out there that said, who am I now? Who should I strive to be? What is attractive to me? And so people like he, I started listening to all his sermons, reading everything I could on him. And of course, for me, that meant, if, oh, okay, so if I'm gonna, I feel this really burden to serve my community and humanity, that must mean I just need to go to the church, right? Yeah. And so one day I was on my job and I said, you know what, I'm gonna do this. And I uh, started becoming interested in churches or whatever, started visiting around. And after like six months of going, I ended up going up to my minister and saying, hey, I don't know what all this stuff means, but I'm sensing some sense of call to ministry. I don't know if that's preaching or whatever, but I'm about to leave my job or whatever. I've been around here serving a bit and I just need to know if I need to do that here. I need to go somewhere else. Like what's going on, right? And uh, he just looks at me and says, okay. And um, and I'm grateful for this ministry. He, um, he enrolled me in what I learned later was an apprenticeship program that dates back to the training of African-American ministers where we just observe. He took me from amongst the congregation, but sat me amongst the people and just made me watch, invited me to different minister settings or whatever. And and I kind of learned on the ropes. It was a different kind of a religious training in that 
after like six months of doing that, he had me do what we call a trial sermon in my tradition, right? And then after that, he would take me to funerals and weddings and just let me just go around with him everywhere. And I learned through that that um, that people, especially in these communities, in these church communities, um, they latch on to different things, things. And so by going to experience so many funerals with people at such a young age, in my early twenties, I just learned a lot. You know, I just learned a lot about people in general. And then next thing you know, I'm hired on his staff. Has no credentialing for it, but all of a sudden, I'm serving people in this capacity and. Yeah, so that's how it started for me. I think at least this quest of understanding what does it mean to not only serve community, but also what does it mean to grope for deeper meaning in human existence. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how old were you then? I was about 22, 23 then. So let's, um, I love that, paint the broad strokes. Let's, yeah. get, let's get detailed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to know what Biloxi was like when you were a kid. Man, Gulfport Biloxi area was... Um, was fun. I mean, I had a overall. As I think back, I, I really enjoyed my childhood and my youth. I, uh, I, like I said, we were under resourced, but I didn't know it. I had a loving mother who, who for me was. I mean, she embodied whatever God was for me. She was the most gentle, compassionate person I ever met. She taught me everything I know about how to really treat other people, right? And um, Staying with us was a great aunt. I come from a very small family. Uh, it was just my mom, my great aunt, living in Gulfport, Mississippi, and and I think she never made more than twenty four thousand dollars a year working at J.C. Penney's or whatever. And I went to public school systems there, but I just had a great group of friends in the community. All of us came from these different environments. Uh, we didn't know how much we lacked, but we made fun out of stuff: riding bikes three miles to jump a gate to get into a uh, Air Force Base to go play basketball all day, seven hours, and jump back over and ride all the way back home. Sometimes finding 50 cent and just riding our bikes five miles to go to a bowling alley to play a damn arcade game. Just stupid stuff like that. We just had so much fun coming up. Now that was balanced with, um, what I think about now is a sort of uh, a sociality of what, what of what of morality for us. So, so what I mean by that is like, uh, there were certain decisions we made and certain practices that we engaged in that may not have been sort of viewed as the healthiest thing. But for, for us, a lot of it was about survival, right? Um, there are a lot of things uh, I participated in when I was younger. Uh, some were illegal in nature, some we're not, not proud of. But but overall, there was a community there for us. And 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 my mom, for me, was a stabilizing structure for me that, that goaded me toward what was right and what was good. And... Um, and I had a great group of friends, many of whom I still keep in contact now, who still to this day, I look back at some of the most ingenious persons I've ever met in my life. They just were not afforded some of the the privileges and exceptional exposures that I've had over my lifetime. But save those, right? I, you know, there, there really is no difference between me and them. And I, I, one of my great friends, in fact, when we were coming up, was in all these gifted programs as a young kid. But just like you talked about fame, his the problem that happened for him is he became real popular. Mm. So by the time we got 13, 14, 15 year old, he became a real popular kid and was this strikingly handsome young man, tough, rugged, like nobody messed with him, but at the same time had, you know, all the women or whatever. And that served to take him in other directions. But still a smart guy and 
he literally saved my life on many occasions. I'd be hanging with him in different places and he kept me out of um, many things that I shouldn't survive. And so uh, I think about the experiences in, in Gulfport and I call it Gulfport Bluxy, but really Gulfport and Bluxy is like a municipality. Those were some of the, the, the most significant shaping experiences for me that made me who I am. Could you say one of those? I think for one, it taught me about loyalty. It taught me about loyalty. It taught me about uh, meaning what you say, right? It taught me about not overselling yourself. It taught me a lot about um, letting your yes be yes, your no be your no's, you know. It taught me about the consequences of over speaking, you know. A lot of these lessons that I still employ as an ethic in my business arrangements now with close communities and friends that we that, that uh, I know you were here with my good friend Matthew earlier. Uh, we've created this kind of community where we try to um, create alternative space for exploring spirituality in ways that's really robust. And and part of that community ethic between us is like, I'm naturally like, so if we talk about Enneagram, I'm naturally this eight personality, right? So for me, I have a strong nine wing, but I'm an eight. So for me, like, I don't understand if you just can't say what you mean, but also to mean what you say, right? Like, you don't have to say anything to me that you don't, that you're not willing to say in front of me. You ain't got to say it out there. You can say it to me directly and we can handle it. I learned those things. I think some of that stuff was shaped in me at a, at a younger age uh, because for us, many of the things that we said, we, what we were and who we were, our lives depended on it. Uh, I have two tr experiences I never really talk about. One, I remember being in the backyard, um, with a group of my friends who, we were there with a guy, young guy named, I'll call him Chad, and um, his life was being threatened by a rival sector people, group or gang or whatever, and we decided, oh, well, we're gonna be there for you or whatever. So we were all this late one night in his backyard. He and his dad was on top of his roof with some guns pointing down, and another friend of mine was in a tree with a gun. I'm in a backyard with a freaking rock, right? And we're waiting on some people to come through the neighborhood. Uh, apparently, I guess they were going to shoot his home or whatever. And we were just going to, like, be there and help defend or whatever. Fortunately, nothing happened at night. Nobody came through. But as I recall that experience, I'm thinking about, man, you know, what were you thinking? Another experience, I'm with my friend Brian and, and another dude. And we go to this party. There are a lot of uh, persons we were attracted to at this party or whatever. Next thing you know, it's just me, him, and one other friend of ours. And a group of about 20 folk coming out of cars or whatever. And we happen to be in this rival neighborhood. And like, we literally, there was nothing we could have done that night. Just so happened. Um, we get out to place, nothing too tragic happens. I just end up throwing one punch and just fortunately, we call it synchronicity, God or whatever. Uh, persons decide to say, hey, wait a minute, let's stop here. And I've had like experiences that in my younger age and I wonder sometimes, man, why did I survive some of these things? Or why did, um, why was I able to not only have different exposures while experiencing that in ways that my friends weren't? Because at the same time, these things were happening when I was younger. I would get exposure to um, some white teachers who saw something in me despite they were able to look beyond the sort of body, bodily significations and codings of, my, of me and my neighborhood. I had this teacher named Ms. Patrick Sellity who noticed a, a gifting in math for me and decided to stay after. She knew I didn't go anywhere after class, so she said, look, stay after school with me. I want you. To, I want to see something, Cleve. And she would 
give me extra courses in physics and calculus and stuff. I had another teacher who said, Cleve, I know there's something in English. I want you to stay after school. And and one teacher decided to drive me when I was 15. Only reason why, I never I never had any aspirations of going to college at all, honestly. Um, but one teacher decided to drive me um, four hours to Mississippi State and start with Mississippi to sit for college level examinations. She had signed me up. And later in life, I learned that she did that because she just wanted to instill a confidence in me that, hey, you could go do whatever you want to do. So after I had these sessions with her or whatever, she signed me up to go to these courses, got in contact with my mom, said, hey, I'm willing to drive. Drove me four hours one way. I'm in this room and I take all these tests and come back or whatever. And she comes back and like, look, you passed all these things. You already got college level for calculus and stuff right now if you want to go, right? And I was like, whoa, okay. And so I go back, you know, I'm still 15, 16 in my neighborhood. My mother at the time uh, stricken with cancer. Um, so I began doing whatever other activities I needed to help my, my family survive. And during this time, she connected me with different things. And I said, okay, I tried out. She exposed me to applications. I find next thing you know, I'm going to Mississippi State. After my first year, I do real well there, but it's, what's so vague about this though, John, is I have no really memory of, like I do now in graduate school, I, I, I'm really invested emotionally, intellectually into what I'm doing day to day. Then it was different. It was sort of like I was in a a third body acting and doing. It's like I was being at the same time, but I was doing, being a different person. It was weird for me because I remember my first year was like a daze. I took some of these courses or whatever, did good in them. After my first year of college, I also, I get a job offer to come to Houston as a undergraduate intern for Houston Lightning Power Company, it was called at the time. And I worked in South Houston. So here I am, 18, 19 year old, my first time. That's how I got exposed to Houston. And um, another opportunity arose. And so I started working for this company. The lady just liked me. And she was training me in industrial engineering. Um, that was after, my, after one year of school. And through that, I was able to, they paid me money. I had an apartment here. I was able to send my mom back money. And so those experiences happened. And that same year, my mom ended up passing away. And so I had a responsible for my great aunt. So I just recognize that the course and trajectory of my life has been, it's, it's never been uh, conventional, but but all along the way, I've had these exposures to people, to places, to times that have created great shifts in my life in ways that, that has been inexplicable to me. It's always kept me open to uh, mystical possibilities and, and what that may mean for my life. Because no matter what, Although I think we get it wrong, uh, get it wrong a lot whenever we try to instantiate mystery, right, around notions of of God and justice or whatever that may be. I do think sometimes that there, I've always felt there's something else been going on in the world that that that's carrying me and beyond me, and uh, and opens up rivers for me. And so I just have not been able to put my mark on it yet. But I do think that that type of experience, these types of experiences, um connect me to a wider type of activity that's going on in the world. I got two, two questions about that. I'm, uh, what, what's your theory on what that kind of out of body mm. freshman year, what was that about? You think? I'm not certain. I, I, I say, um, I'm not certain. I, what I will say is I, I just reckon, I just realized that time for me, I didn't reckon, I want to put it like this way. I didn't understand the stakes in ways that I do now. So then I was just being and doing, right? Yeah. 
And so I didn't have so much mindfulness of what the stakes are at play. I just was, a lot of stakes didn't matter to me. I was just trying to live, if that makes sense. And so while I was in this new environment of college or whatever, unlike a lot of kids who were preparing for college, hell, I had, I had no plans on being here, right? Yeah, you're in like, uh, just, yeah, I think that, I mean, that certainly makes a lot of sense where yeah. you're going, you know, there's no real framework. Yeah, you never yeah. had any intentions. Yeah. You're just, yeah. all right, doing the next best thing. You've got this seemingly amazing teachers <laughs> yeah, yeah. driving you for four hours. Yeah, yeah. And they made they support in that way along with my mom. I don't want to, like, she was, she had to work all the time, but she, she created space for me. And, hmm. and for, in many ways, I was, she, re she realized, she, at the time I didn't know, but she was dying. She was diagnosed with cancer and she encouraged me to go to college anyway. And, um, and so I found myself in the space still living, but I was really, I mean, you know, I still was in this sort of liminality, right? I still was hmm. a part of, but not, and I never have been, I mean, that's carried with me throughout, but I've always been this person in spaces where I was there, but I was also somewhere else. I very much was still in my community while I was in this space. And like well, a lot of kids, uh, I was actually, I'm still one of only two persons I know ever went to college from my neighborhood, but I did have other friends in the city that I knew of. And they were in this experience. And so for me, I would, it was, everything was brand new. I understood all of a sudden I'm in this class with all these people, but I was always able to tune that out. I would go back to my room, just focus on my work and then keep going. Um, and fast forward a little bit, I did inter internships, come back to school, and uh, I started Houston Light and Power Company. And I started working for another company in Louisville, Mississippi. And I come back to school, and then my mother passes, and that marks another transition for me because uh, at that point I'm like 17, but I'm, but since I was about 12 or 13, I'd always felt like I was grown already. I had responsibilities for my family. But when my mom passed, something significantly shifted because we still have a live-in great aunt who's the only surviving family member that I was responsible for while I'm in Mississippi, Mississippi State rather. And so I had to make a decision to go back home for a year. And here's again where things happen. And while I was at home that whole year, my life reverted back a bit, mm. right? Mm -hmm. I started picking up the same activities, only freer now because my mom's not there as a sort of guiding present, moral presence for me. So then my home becomes something a bit different, right? Um, but I had my great aunt and uh, we had, but I think my sense of community was still powerful to me because we still had these community codes. There were lessons and, and there were these guiding mores in play, right? We didn't mess with each other's homes, uh, no matter who we was beefing with, there were just certain things you just didn't do. And uh, while I was there, by this time, it was it's, it's also amazing too. Like there's always been um, white women, right? Supervisor here in Houston Power Company, and I forget her. She was a graduate of Purdue. She called while one this year I was absent. She called Cleve. How are you doing? I know you're not interning with us anymore, but um, just really interested in your life. What you doing? And I said, Oh, so well, you know, I had to come home. I'm, uh, my mom, I had to take a, a break for you. I, I plan on going back, but. Right now I got some other responsibilities. She was like, huh, okay. Get off the phone. Next thing I know, she calls back and says, hey, we want to offer you a position here. And we know you hadn't graduated or anything. But we want to offer you a position if you're willing to kind of come to Houston 
and we'll help you finish while you're here in Houston or whatever and do what you got to do. So uh, long story short, 1994 or something like that, I just ended up moving to Houston, man, and started working with them for a while. And um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of what got, it really just took me out of the, out of that environment. But when I was got, got, to, got to Houston, I just started trying to figure out life here. And then my great aunt ended up passing away while I was here. And uh, so then I was kind of on my own a bit and just making life, working in engineering. I didn't really like it, so I moved more to business uh, business analyst where I did some coding kind of stuff, but I, I got into project management and um, moving people, started working with Hewitt and Associates here in the Woodlands, and I worked to another company called Synergy. And all of that started happening when I started becoming struck with uh, a sense of call to community, like, hey, because even when I moved here in Houston, I was always attracted to other communities. And I got introduced to the Acres Home community here in Houston. Uh, and I rode out there and it was this young, vibrant congregation, had a young pastor and people. And I saw it and said, man, you know, I'm gonna be in this community. And not long after, uh, all thing I knew was of course, the, the Christian meaning of religion for me then. So then I started reading all the Bible and all the lessons in it and said, hey, you know, I, I need to commit myself to something, you know, and uh, from them, not, I decided that I wanted to give myself wholly to making a difference. And for that, what that meant for me then was a type of ministry, Christian ministry for me. And uh, made a transition over the next two years from there. So by the time I was 24, 25, I found myself full-time on the staff at a church here in Houston. Right? Do you feel that your mother's death really pulled you more into the... It did, because I remember... Um, I have these, these markers, right? I remember being in Houston. So when I moved to Houston... Uh, I end up some kind of way. Fast forward, I lived in Champions Forest, right across it from somewhere in a place I should not have been in, paying all this kind of money for rent, and I was about to get evicted or something like that. And I remember it was the first time that I really ever really prayed. Like I got up and I say, "Look, God and my mom, whoever you are, some stuff about to go down now. There's nobody I can call. I ain't got no mama, no daddy." If you don't help, shit about to fall out, right? You see what I'm saying? So uh, did that little quick thing, got up off my knees and said, okay, what are we going to do now? You know what I'm saying? This is deep, man. <laughs> God, I, don't, I don't know who and to so, turn to. I'm alone. So, I don't know what that is. Yeah. And so uh, anyway, figured something out and uh, end up going to the leasing office. Said, look, I can't pay this right here. And man, it was amazing. This leasing late person, they said, okay, don't worry about it. We'll transition you over here. And. Yeah, and from that experience, I said, wow, okay, there may be something to this God thing or whatever. And and so did I just end up keep going to school and, and working, you know, finally worked out a way that I can still finish my, because my advisors at Mississippi State still worked out able me to finish while I was still here working in, in that. But then not long after I finished, I decided uh, I wanted to go in ministry. And so I, I did that for a while. And as I began working and I started burying and marrying folk, my minister founder said, okay, well, maybe probably, we probably should ordain and ordain you now since you're doing all this stuff. And so I go through all of that. And then I just had this hunger. I was like, well, I want to be more theologically informed. If I'm going to be serving here, I need to be more informed about why I'm doing that. And so that marked me transitioning around 2004 to going out back to the East Coast to go to seminary because I just wanted to be more, more, adept at what I was doing. What was seminary like? 
man, I, I, I reflect back on it, it probably was the, one of the most formative transforming experience outside of community. I think my seminary experience, it was a wonderful experience. Um, I don't know the people I met, but I think the, it was for the first time that I got intellectual exposure to a tradition of, of black critical thought that I was never exposed to before. So it wasn't until I was, what, 31, 32 that I ever read Du Bois' the Souls of Black Folk or even came in contact with Fire Next Time or even really heard of Toy Morrison, folk like this. And so, and all that while I was at the seminary, not so much because of the course curricula at the seminary, but because uh, of the different people I was in conversation with and the exposures that they provided. So I remember my first or second year, I ended up sitting in on um, Cornell West class, tall African-American intellectual traditions, and they were reading <laughs> everything from Hortense Spillers to, uh, to W.B. Du Bois, to everybody who I was like, had never heard of. And so what I ended up scrambling and doing during this time was taking this required practical theological curriculum while stacking on top of that a whole bunch of hours in black cultural studies because I just was wanting to be so informed. So I didn't seminary, I killed myself by taking 21 hours a semester just um, because I just was interested in this. I had, I had required to take this, but I was interested in this. And it was another kind of, I describe it as a, a a type of mystical experience for me because <clears throat> it felt almost like Mississippi State again for me because I was there and there were some experiences that were very embodied for me, like what I was studying at a relate as it relates to African American culture. I remember theology theology and ethics of Martin King. I remember ethics and politics in the black community. I remember, you know, black cultural practices and stuff. But what I don't remember is all this other practical theology stuff I was taking as well. I even won a preaching award while I was there. Barely remember the freaking class, right? Um, and I just had, and some things came easy to me. I had such great, great uh, ease and um, success in ministry experience. I ended up interning with uh, significant denominational leaders there. I was on a path to like do great things there, and um, and just really had had fun there. I was there when I began. I became co-moderator or president of American Black Seminarians, and we did a whole bunch of projects with uh, a lot of people who are held in African-American religious traditions from Noah Jones to Ralph West, and we invited James Cone down to this big symposium. And so uh, we just had like a great experience in seminary that really just changed my trajectory. But what began to happen for me was my thinking about Black religion changed a bit, though. I began to ask more rudimentary questions about well, what is the really, what's the nature and meaning of a black religion? And is the Christian language the only um, only way of articulating the meaning of religion for black folk, if there's something more fundamental to it, right? And as I began to reading about the debates in the African-American community about different visions and and modes for thinking about black life and thought, I, I become to recognize that, yeah, this orientation um, has been helpful and it's very much still meaningful but there's a history of why it became so predominant, right? Uh, not only the existential crisis of the black American community, but also there was an intellectual type of component that appealed to black Americans. What, uh, what is it these things? So as I began studying all these things, I said, man, you know, this is very interesting. I'm interested in doing some comparative stuff. And it was there when I ran across, came across the work of Anthony Penn and Terror and Triumph. And, uh, and once I read that, I was like, whoa, okay. I don't really understand what he means by this complex subjectivity, but 
I do think that there's something deeper there. There's a different core. I like what he's talking about in this historical manifestation, but there's a deeper core struggle to it. This desire to move from reified object to uh, a conveyor of complex cultural meaning, somebody who determines meaning for themselves and able to beat back these deftifying significations of what blackness is, right? Okay, yeah, put the brakes on that. <laughs> okay, okay, let's, okay, okay. let's dig into that. Yeah, so so that's where, you know, and I, and I say it that way, but that's where it's evolved to now for me. So um, I first read that book back in 2006 or so, but it's only until about the last year or so where now I've begun to think theoretically and practically about religion more generally, but also more narrowly what the nature of black religion is, right? And it's from this tradition of black intellectual thought from Du Bois to Orlando Patterson to folk like Cornel West to Charles Long and his famous study on significations where I come to realize that African-American religion has always been a sort of responsive thing, uh, not just reactive, but reflexive. It's a way of thinking about the meaning of black existence and one's significance in uh, a place and time, right? And so when I first read Penn's book about this, um, I began saying, yeah, there's something about religion that's social in nature, right? But it also is like affective, um, psychological nature. I, I keep referring back to my mom, right? Like there have been all these attachments that have been meaningful to me throughout my development that I know as just as, as meaningful to my religious expression as well, right? Um, and what really um, I've gathered now is to start thinking about the the, the sort of embodied somatic, somatic aspects of what religious struggle means, right? Uh, what are some of the ways that we convey meaning through how we uh, comport ourselves and how does culture inscribe these meanings on how we comport ourselves and how does this meaning come in. So all these things really started generating for me. So where now I think about it, like, you know, using this sort of metaphor of social death, I think about black religion as uh, this constant struggle by African-Americans to stave off these uh, significations of social death, this alienation, this NATO alienation that says you don't belong. And so we've always been searching for frameworks, meaning frameworks from which we now only have meaningful social belonging, um, but also where the uh, dignity and value of black life is sort of expressed. So my whole dissertation now thinks about, um, it, I've entitled it Making Black Lives Matters, kind of uh, dovetailing off of this epic of black freedom struggle right now. It's what does it mean when folks saying black lives matter right now? Well, they're, they're trying to engage not only in a sort of language struggle, but also to, it's a way to sort of enter into uh, spaces to say, yeah, you know, throughout the history of African-American personhood, there had been this, this beating back of, of meaning. And so Christianity, whether it's Christianity, whether it's, uh, other systems of meaning, American public religion, all these things have become to signify different bodies as either other compared to. And so what I talk about now is how, what are some of the different ways in history and even now uh, black bodies have struggled to not only make meaning, but also create different modes of belonging that signifies that they are just as valuable as any other bodies. And and so black Protestant Christianity was one mode of doing that. But I, I think now about how that struggle happened in the emergence of the early 20th century with black Greek letter organizations, for instance, on predominantly white college institutions. Mm -hmm. And now I was thinking about it, how 
my third move I make is sort of now how do black activists do that through their art, through their protest, through their various modes of engagement and being in this world, right? And, um, and so my project now is a comparative study looking at how these three different modes represent what I characterize as a deeper struggle that is African-American religion, uh, a type of figurative struggle to kind of represent and signify blackness as something much more than uh, how it's commonly been disparaged in culture. Yeah. I mean, difference is not some this type of problem persons have to resolve. It's something that should be appreciated and we lived in and live into, right? So cultural differences are not something that uh, should be a problem for us. But it only becomes a problem when some, when some thing becomes normalized as standard. And typically in our society, you know, uh, we don't name it. We don't name whiteness as normative. But what happens, it becomes a normative, a standard bearer thing against which we ascribe meaning to everything else too. And so um, having, I think, healthier conversations around uh, culture and society and their cultural differences and and what that means is important in general because as we just think about religion itself, right, is a type of culture, right? It's a type of, of way of expressing our understandings of what we don't freaking understand really. All these religious systems are really saying like, all right, we want to sort of like, you know, let's instantiate something, let's create some meaning arrangements around some stuff. We don't really know what we're talking about here, but, but what we are going to say is like, in this quest for certitude, we're going to establish here that this is what this means, right? And the struggle for all of us as humans has been like, you know, uh, how to live with ambiguity. I, I always think the greatest evil is, is this sort of need for certitude and not being able to like, live in ambiguity and 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 to say that like we don't have to know every damn thing right we can know certain aspects of certain things but the truth of the matter is uh we don't know um we can look back in history at great charismatic mystical leader leaders and figures uh but to project onto them um this thing that we're constantly striving for is a danger now and i just say like, I, just, I like remaining open to mystery and say at the end of it all Heck, we all may be surprised. I don't know. But I think it's okay to live in this, this constant tension and ambiguity and kind of what that means. And so what culture comes to mean for me is like these different type of things that individuals come in contact with that becomes meaningful for them and their particular people groups. And um, they begin to establish a type of identity for a people, right? So uh, hip hop is a type of culture, right? Not just a music. Um, Christian music is a type of culture, right? All these are different meaningful type of languages and modes of participating in life that they become meaningful for particular groups of people. And it, it becomes different over against uh, other things, whether it's Jewish culture or other cultures. And so, um, so yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a slippery term, but I think, you know, social scientists has tried to find it over again I'm, I'm missing the most precise definition i think i, I work with but there are persons like amani perry for instance who writes about this and uh geertz who i use of course in my in my own work who talk about how these these pattern types of meanings that become embedded in society as these things we live into yeah so let's then let's take that and yeah. dig in right yeah. so because my my thought is that we're we're talking about black expression black people and then that 
the experience of a particular people in general, but for our conversation, black people, then the culture has created a sense of identity and a way of being in the world. Right. And I really like what you're saying about way of making meaning in the world. Yeah. So what I want to do, hopefully a good, that we'll do a good job of is define when you keep talking about black religion or black yeah, theolo yeah. theological studies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I just think, you know, there's a lot of folks, including myself. I mean, I know a number of the names that you've said. Uh, I think one of my favorite is James Cone. Mm. And I, I really, I, I like what he has to say about in particular, the cross and the lynching tree, uh, the lynching tree. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I'm, I, I'm interested in discovering more of what you mean when you say black religion, black theological studies. Yeah, yeah. And certainly hearing about who you were hearing from and who you were affected by as you were kind of matriculating through your experience yeah. in this probably pretty amazingly powerful formative experience in graduate school. Yeah, it has been. So like, yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. When I refer to, so I consider black religious and theological studies to be part of a broader tradition of black critical thought, right? So in itself, it is an intellectual tradition that is a part of the academy uh, that is emergent, that emerges from a broader type of black critical consciousness movement, first in the 50s and 60s, in the civil rights and black power movements that forced and put moral ethical demands upon academic institutions to kind of uh, recognize that knowledge production happens from a, very, a variety of sites. So Cone being one of the sort of one of the initial barriers, but before him Du Bois as well, but I'll just talk about theology. Right. Cone was one of the first ones to say, look, okay, I want to use Bart, stir him with a bit of Tillich, but also pri make a primary source African-American experience, right? For the source of doing theology. Because this experience is able to say something that Barth and Tillich ain't thinking about, right? They don't give a fuck about these people, but what I want to say to you is that knowledge production happens from this type of epistemology that kind of informs and also inflects and corner and maybe um, challenges some of the notions that exist. The same thing I'm doing in my own project right now. Yeah, I have not mentioned folk like, you know, uh, I'm really, I guess my own project is done like a, a neo-Dirkheimian type of thing, but I'm subverting them and saying like, no, I could use these folk and I am going to appeal to them because that's the way I'm going to graduate. But, but more than that, <laughs> <laughs> people who are more important than that are people like, you know, Du Bois and Patterson and Long and Penn here, right? Who sort of center this experience as a way of forming this knowledge production. So I, I can rethink about what religion and theology is if I can start from this type of center rather than the other center, right? So what I mean by black religious thought and black theology or black critical thought is um, a type of epistemal uh epistemology, a type of starting point for understanding how we know things in this world. Mm. And it all relates back to me where we start in our discussions about me being a black kid from an under-resourced uh, community in Gulfport, Mississippi. That epistemology sort of informs what I try to, what I try to produce at least uh, right now. What are some of the ways that I've worked all of my life through wearing bandanas, um, through communicating the way I communicate or listen to NWA, how have I tried to signify a meaningful type of blackness that establishes my place in the world and makes me okay with myself, but more than that, allows me to carve out a meaningful life for myself, right? So when I think about black religious and theological thought, all I'm thinking about 
all I'm talking about is the various ways in which black peoples have struggled through these uh, through these modes and patterns of thought to create meaning for themselves, right? Black theology more narrowly is one way, but black religious within the tradition of black religious thought that expands, right? So it becomes um, a part of uh, black, what they call black magical traditions through ancestors, through all kind of stuff. But there've been variety of ways in which folks have, it comes through the humanistic traditions. So there are a variety of traditions through which these different meaning arrangements have, have been, been have been studied and so um so for me i think what struck me was i recognized my own particularity but i also recognize that my particularity is not all encompassing that there are broader traditions of of struggle that exist not only for my people but for a range of people that we have to be mindful of but i think the problem and interaction that me and some of my friends do now is the problem happens is that we all think our particularity and the way that we struggle is the way to struggle, right? Yeah. And so we don't stay, we remain open to what I would call the, the spiritualistic mystical possibilities that's, that's in common by critical exchange between you and I, John, mm -hmm. right? Because you have a whole host of experiences and ways in which you've been formed in this world and developed and thought through it that could inform, challenge, and also uh, help me as a person think through my being in the world as well. Mm -hmm. And so um, what's, what's happening, what's emerged now, at least in the academy, is this whole discourse around black critical study or blackness studies or black studies that has a whole uh, intellectual integrity to it that goes back and, and is traceable. And what ways can it be, can it add to production? It's doing it right now in academic, but it's also still something that's uh, quite marginalized, right? And so for folks who are emerging, whether it's myself and other folks who start doing this stuff now, we we have started being trained in particular ways that allow us to kind of make interventions that way without having to subvert it, right? So like, unlike Cohen, who had to write a dissertation on Bart first before he started talking about, uh, right, God of the oppressed, now of us are able to come out the box, start talking about making Black Lives Matter, religion and race, and the struggle for African-American identity like me, uh, because now persons have gone before us, whether it was people like Penn or other folks at other institutions have done that before us. Yeah. I've got to, I got to disclose something to you. Okay. Um, Cause speaking of different signifiers, when I was a young guy, you couldn't you couldn't go in you couldn't walk into a store and buy nwa when i was my age it was mm. uh, they wouldn't let you get it i was too young mm. so i stole it i went into uh you know sound waves or whatever it was then blockbuster sorry okay. blockbuster uh <laughs> and i stole that nwa cassette okay i took it and when i was a kid we used to I would we, we we had those headphones, you know, and and we had our tape players, and we would I would break the headphones and separate the the headphones and run the the speaker down your thing, and you could sit in class. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was technical. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! And I would uh, I would listen to NWA. Really? Yeah, it was one of my first. Like I would say, it was the. I mean, I did a lot of listening when I was a kid in elementary school. When I was in middle school, I was connected with a lot of different cultures kind of came together. And, okay, okay. And for a young white guy, I mean, 
looking at what was happening with NWA, I was just mesmerized. Mm. I mean, I, and so it's it, it's interesting. You've now referenced them two times. Yeah. And, and you know, if I were giving my own personal narrative, certainly about my own sense of rebellion and kind of struggle to find my own identity, I would I would put that record in there, you know, mm. cassette, mm. as something that was very significant. And, yeah. You know, here I was doing this transgressive behavior and kind of breaking a rule. Um, not because I had a habit of doing that. I just, I, I couldn't buy the record and I needed to have it. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't advocate for that, but that's part of my narrative. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's kind of interesting that you and I are sharing some of these same signifiers and at least that one in particular in our development, certainly transgressive behavior. I had I, some too. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, maybe eventually we can come around to that because I think as you said, hip hop is not a, a kind of music necessarily. Of course, it's a kind of music, but it's so much more than that. Yeah, yeah. And that music for me was signified a lot. I mean, it was, mm. a, uh, I, 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 I knew it, you know, certainly the, the music videos we were, we were seeing. And, and I think about Express Yourself when, when mm. um, NWA did that song, you know, and we we're seeing those images uh, I, I was captivated. Wow. And wow. and I probably didn't have the language then, but thinking about the oppressor and the oppressed mm. and how most adolescents at, at some point are, are struggling through that. Again, a lot of them probably don't have the language, but struggling through the oppressive, you know, oppressiveness of the maybe family of origin, but certainly the culture kind of telling an adolescent who to be and what to do. Okay. But then broadening that out into black lives yeah. and black yeah. religion and black theology yeah i just think that's that we share that and i I'm, i've just kind of been interested in, in yeah i mean that so you were younger than i but i they became formative for me when i was what so when i started coming into my teenage years 14 15 era that's when their album dropped mm -hmm. you know and i was i was in guffboard during that time and so songs like you know fuck the police and all this other kind of stuff we would memorize them right and be in the back of our yard drunk as hell singing out the lyrics, right? But it was one of the first groups that really spoke at least uh, to a particular experience. And during that time, of course, you know, um, LA gang culture was big, but those same types of cult of crip blood thing had kind of spread through the South as well. Right. And so they were all in our neighborhood as well. And so uh, they helped identify us, you know, in these own little community sects as well. As, and so um, they were a significant group for for me as well. Them and sort of groups like EPMD as well, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and and for me, like you know, I, not then, but in hindsight, they served as a type of you know. They contained a a language for the meaning of what religious struggle is for me. How I theorize it now, right? There are ways in which I I was trying to come to terms with what it meant for me to be a black youth, right? And how, at least my community created significance when those outside of that community sort of like, you know, uh, engage in these reductive type of views and stereotypes of who we are, but we establish a different type of self-worth for ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And so no different than these notions of religion now. Like, so for us, you know, if you can understand that as this basic struggle, uh, these were all ways that we were fighting for like wrestling with coming to know who we are and what that meant. And so it was a tussle yeah. for me because uh, I'm in this community at the same time I was getting, you know, some other community formation development here in school. I was like, oh, okay, great, you know. And uh, but I just think we don't we don't need to ignore all these different factors and how they shape us to how we become, right? And because these things never leave us, right? They just kind of come along with us, and and uh, 
And I use that as one spot, but I also have, I have not talked about it, but I also still very much cherish my um, explicitly black Protestant formation as well. Mm. I mean, I, I mean, the experiences of being in that community and preaching and teaching still very much holds sway to me. A lot of that narrative knowledge, right? It's still is meaningful and so and so it enables me now to engage engage and go in all these communities while dodging these signifiers like i i don't i don't like being pressed into any one particular religious identity like for me it's like me like somebody asked, so, so so ask me a question for instance are you a christian is a fundamentally stupid question to me like <laughs> how can i answer that substantively to you well it depends on what you mean by christian yeah yeah what do you mean by christian if you're talking about do i still identify with a particular, you know, uh, black post-Baptist sort of prophetic Christian mystical tradition, maybe, right? Yeah. You know, uh, but if you're talking about, you know, some of the, do I care about some of the rituals and doctors and certainly evangelical, I'm like, hell no, that, mean, that don't mean shit to me, right? Hell, I don't even know if the same object that they point to is something that I, I would agree with, right? Yeah. So, um, but does it still, and this more particular, does it still carry significant weight and meaning? Not only for me, but for a community I care about. And do I still, just like I do now, code switch if I go in those communities? Yes. And I can do it with integrity. Now, there are certain things I could never say, but I still can preach a message today. Now, there are only certain things I could probably do, but um, learning how to negotiate all these different things don't just happen in I argue they happen in academic spaces, they happen in community, they happen all the way. And so learning how to negotiate various social spaces that have in, in their own way, right, manifested and created these notions of what's sacred for them, right? Mm. I think that is more broadly and more basically what uh, religious struggle or spirituality it is. It's just trying to make your way through a morass of meaning orders and structures and symbols and signs and shit archetypes whatever it is like you try to figure out you know how, what creates this sacredness for me i you know as i think why i'm enjoying our conversation today it's like man you know i haven't this is church to me i haven't had a really there are not many people you can have conversations with to talk about there's both something there but also there's something very ambiguous about it. it's opaque right um but it's still meaningful to have the conversation and to think through it and uh, so if I can reduce my, I reduce, and I do reduce it that way, you know, religion for me is nothing other than outside of psychologically speaking, a process of sort of self-development. Who the hell, who am I? What am I? Why do I matter in this world? Yeah, what is this? What is this? It's this whole notion of individuation, right? Like young and home and had it right. Like, yo, it's figuring out how to like really become an individual, right? Yes. Um, and so... I think where we get it wrong sometimes is when we try to be reductionistic and we try to diminish how other people do that. Just because I don't need necessarily uh, the evangelical black Protestant tradition I came out of don't anymore doesn't mean I have the right or I should negate or try to diminish those who still find it valuable. Because what I argue, especially for under under-resourced mm. uh, black folks, that was the first critical intellectual tradition in which I was able to engage and think about the world. Dumb folk ain't reading William James. <laughs> right? Not many people are. Not many people are, right? Yeah. But William James for me was one of the most stirring. By the way, while I was in seminary, it was Du Bois and William James and and um and Baldwin, who for me yeah. were my muses. 
there was something about James that took me in a different direction. He articulated um, a type of religious meaning to me that was like, whoa, this dude, do you hear him say this? I remember reading quotes sometimes like, baby, listen to this shit. <laughs> at the end of this essay, he says, here we stand at the path of something winding and winding, a, a direction in which we, we may not know where we go. We must act and take courage and take what comes. I'm like, that's some amazing shit, right? <laughs> How he would define in faith about faith has this quality of courage. And I'm like, whoa, the way he's talking about the pragmatics and utility of faith. That's why I became a pragmatist when it came to religion. It's like, look. You talking about Baldwin? I'm talking about James, James here, specifically. Yeah. I'm saying, in as much as it, it is helpful to folk and shit, they got the right to be religious, right? In fact, James talks about this, how he would he would have changed that essay to be the, you know, the right to believe instead of the will to believe, right? Everybody has a right on their own to believe and adhere to certain things that help them make meaning and make it through the next day. Um, and so he has all these great analogies, analogies about the dog's kin and how, yeah. you know, all this shit. I'm like, whoa. When I was in seminary reading this shit, man, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> this is amazing. Like, and, um, and so, yeah, like all these figures intellectually like stirred me in direction, but, but more so for me, and this is where me and my um, good friend, Matt really have connected more than anything as, as soulmates is, Beyond all that bullshit, all we care about, man, is what does it mean to have a really authentic, meaningful community and to live in a world that's not just about narcissism and competition? Mm. Right? What if two people didn't have to really be competing against each other? Right? What it wasn't just if, it, if, I, if our own eco ambitions could be some kind of way sublimated in something else that keeps us from wanting to kill each other? Right? Um, we can do this thing together. And that's what we struggle for. But honestly, man, I had, I'm in my what? Last year in my program now, which is year eight. I've been this damn thing forever. And, and until about two or three years ago, because how we met really was um, around 2015 or something, Sandra Bland, other stuff started happening in the city. Alton Sterling happened, Philando Castile, Dallas police officers get shot. This is actually summer 2016. And, a group of friends of mine had already been working in the city around uh, and aligned with the Black Lives Matter movement here in Houston. And we met a lot of activists in the city and and we um, utilized our access and exposure on Rice Campus to create these symposiums around the city, around that stuff. And uh, United Methodist Church asked Matt to do some kind of thing. And so some kind of round, they called Rudy and Juanita and Rudy called me and was like, yo, we don't wanna touch this stuff. Why don't you come? You ain't got nothing to lose, right? You know what I'm saying? And so I ended up going to the setting where a whole bunch of UMC ministers are. And, and I basically did what we did. I just changed the, I changed both the, the sort of symbolic authority and the ritual practice authority in that setting. In this setting where, you know, UMCs, of course, it's a Wesleyan tradition. I pretty much said, look, what if you don't use Wesley and Barden, Tillich and all these other fuckers? And I say, let's use Kelly Brown Douglas. Let's use James Cone, these other folks. Then as a ritual practice, uh, my friends started lifting the names of dead black bodies as a ritual of lighting candles in an all white space in a sort of uh, cathedral for the city, which where, where Matt works at. And though that created a lot of sort of disorientation, especially for white folks, because they're used to, they're used to centering and controlling the conversation. What it is was spark a dialogue. And we really started having conversations really around notions of reconciliations. I just pretty much told him, yo, I think that's bullshit. Um, uh, 
But we can have more conversations around why I think it's so, if you're interested, right? Uh, so we just started talking about it, and I just laid too fast. I said, first of all, Matt, you know, name for me an epic in history where you think black folks, persons of color, should be reconciled to. One, outside of your mythical imagination, outside of this mythical garden somewhere where all humans were supposedly all together. Name for me a moment in history where you utilizing that framework can claim that we should be reconciled to something. So to talk about racial reconciliation is already starting from a place of uh, a sort of intellectual sort of dishonesty, right? There's no fucking way that, so this that, that doesn't exist. But then two, I said to him, I said, you know, there, there are constraints to the whole meaning order to this for us to even work. And so for us to even have a conversation about this stuff, using that method, you got to understand, you got to deconstruct a whole bunch of stuff if you want me and my friends to even, even come and have the conversation, right? And he was willing to take it up like, okay, what does this mean? Now, he, I don't think he understood the implications of that. <laughs> but so what we, were they? Well, for us, what we did was we started to construct a theological curriculum that we tore down everything and rebuilt it up using communities of color as the sort of center point, right? So we started using people like, whether it was Vine Deloria or James Cone or uh, Keller Brown, art productions from different kind of people as a new different way of sort of imagining how to do, how to think theology about the good and what's right, right? Uh, so he was trying to build this curriculum. And I said, so I invited some of my friends or some of my colleagues at, at Rice who in a program with me and also friends I had met throughout this city over the years. And about 20 of us got in the room for about, I don't know, about a month or two and we just started deconstructing and rebuilding shit and created some custom curriculum and stuff and said, okay, if you want to do it, that's cool. And that's what kind of brought me with engaging it. And so for me, I said to him and some of my other friends said to him, now look, still to us, this is a bit limited, but this is the best you can do if you want to stay, if you're trying to stay in this framework, you can at least do it this way, right? I mean, today I still got problems with people like calling these other folk, but if you're going to do it, at least do it this way. What's right? your problem with Cone? Well, it's not necessarily with Cone and with these thinkers. I just think Christian theology in general was too limiting for me, uh -huh. right? To really articulate and really get at the, the basic struggle for acknowledging. Because, I mean, there are ways in which, like, you know, LGBTQI folk, you know, folk who are gender nonconforming, trans folk, there are a lot of folks still eliminated from the broader uh, language of Christian <clears throat> meaning that for me doesn't work, right? And there's no as a hard way to get around it as well. I mean, I mean, American Christianity pretty much is a sort of a white Christianity that's that's kind of, that's been deeply affected in ways that I don't think is, is is you can get around. Like there's no theological system that's not deeply affected by these folk, right? And so, for me, the framework itself, the theological discourse framework itself, is limiting, which is why uh, people like Charles Long and he does this sort of theoretical evaluation of it, right? Um, but I do. Th I mean, if you you want to do some gymnastics, you still can create. I mean, you still can find your way. But I just think for me, the the more and more you think through it, the more you come to recognize is ah, like you know, the moment you say, the moment you bring difference together and say we have the same God, right? Then when it becomes to the interpretations of that God, right? whose interpretation is going to win over. Yeah. Right? So this whole notion of sort of multi-ethnic church, which you find oftentimes is, uh, well, what's really going on is they're, 
different representations of folk, but there's really still one dominant paradigm of how this stuff is being interpreted from, right? And so these are just some of the challenges I still engage with churches on now, like difference between diversity and inclusion, right? And is there a way for you to destroy, not destroy, but to disrupt the power dynamic that has real stake in maintaining itself? Because for you to really make this a meaningful type of space, if I'm talking about one particular structure, you're going to have to be willing to kind of let go of this sort of high white male hierarchy that is really determining the whole thing that goes on that siphons its way down. Unless you're willing to do that, then you're not really willing to sort of change this for the better of all these people, right? And so that exists across the board. And so, uh, and that's just a, a broader critique against white churches, but if I talk about my own sort of community, uh, black churches are, tend to be really conservative theologically outside mm -hmm. of say Rudy Rasmus's church, right? <laughs> <laughs> Most of them are very conservative theologically, right? Yeah. And they tend to ostracize a whole bunch of folk, right? And so, um, and so there's so much deeper work around it. And so what, we, what we're finding is that there are new emerging communities happening, they've been happening for a while, the whole spiritual but not religious movement. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about people like Kripal and Parsons over at Rice, we've been thinking about this kind of stuff as well. My advisor has been thinking about this stuff as well. But when it comes to practically living every day and folks finding spaces for them to have uh, conversations about this stuff, uh, there's a groping because people are finding that traditional religious institutions still have too much at stake they're trying to hold on to. There's too much power uh, that folks are not willing to let. Think about it. When folks are able to make, I don't want to pinpoint it, but when people are able to make whatever amount, Seventy to nine thousand dollars a year to not do much. Mostly, you know, I'm talking about white males who to do have to do, not do anything but show up on Sunday, go back in their retreat, get a pension, do what you gotta. Think about it. who. I mean, why would they let that go? I mean, realistic shit. If I was white male and had one of these positions, I wouldn't let it go either. It's like, why would I do it? So, so we gotta think about it. If, and this is a particular against religious institution, but that exists in, across institutions, right? How can we create freer spaces for people to kind of exist? Because the truth of the matter is the money flows through these hierarchical arrangements. And it's hard in a capitalist society to really create organically what's going to happen and what's going to emerge from that. You think that's the culprit, money? I think it's tied to it, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, I mean, it's hard to disentangle sort of capitalism and racism and all these other power. You, know, you can't because, I mean, it one supports the other the sort of socioeconomic and political oppression that happens in this country for a range of groups is always about those who, because those who have most can determine the parameters by which change truly happens, right? Mm -hmm. If I look at religious institutions in the higher order of religious institution, those who are at the top are the ones who are the most comfortable, right? And so to just, so to really change all this down here would have to discomfort what's going on up there, right? And so, um, yeah, they're deeply entangled. There's no way around. I mean, I, I grapple with it now. Part of my grappling now, to be truly free like I am now, means also to be fucking broke, right? In many ways, it does. For me to be a free black man like I am right now is to constantly live in, these, live in this liminality, which I have for a while, and it's fun for me, right? But at the same time, it comes with real costs. That's free. important. Yeah, yeah, it's very important. Like yeah. it, it comes with real costs to really be a free-thinking um person in general, but especially a free thinking sort of black man who wants to like uh, carry that sort of freeness wherever he goes, right? 
there are ways in which once you commit to any particular arrangement, institutional arrangement, you're going to have to lose some of that because there are hoops to play. There are games, you, there are things you just got to subscribe to unless I get me a practice like you. You know what I'm saying? So like, but if you're going to be a, a sign with this uh, type of institution, it comes with those type of things. I got a job for you, by the way. Man, <laughs> hey, we, we may talk about that. <laughs> you know we, may talk about, we may talk about that for real. But you're I'm just hired. Saying, you, know, just... Hey, we may talk about that for real while you're tripping. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Like, too. Oh, so because, but the way that, yeah, because like some of the work, you know, me and my friends are doing right now in the city through Project Curate, you know, Matt and I are co-managers for it is, yeah. um, I was like, that gives me the most joy because I'm having these conversations. We're creating communities. We're bringing lives together, touching people in this community that would never otherwise touch, man. That That is amazing to me. Like, um, yeah, it was the reason why when I first started got to grad school, I was so attracted to sort of uh, psychology of religion because the way that um, there was truth in that shit, the way we idealize certain personages and figures and how meaningful that stuff becomes. I mean, man, there's something, man, there's something to that. And I got a lot of problems with Freud, but shit, he was on to something. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, like this shit is really young. I'm like, yo, they're on to some stuff here. Um, And so, but uh, what I find is, not many people have two things. Not many people have access to critical spaces to think in those ways, one. But then two, we don't do the rough work of being able to translate that shit in ways that's more accessible. That's what I'm talking about. That's what this is, too. Yeah. I, mean, I think that people, I, I, Bill Barnard, as, uh, as I interviewed him a couple of episodes ago, and he let off in the first five minutes, the shit that came out of his mouth, I was like, <laughs> we got to spend the next you know 30 minutes tending to what you just said, because yeah. that's esoteric. Yeah. And there, and, and I think that's kind of what people get at when they talk about the elite, the shadow side of with the elitism, you know, mm. how there's this inaccessibility to some of this stuff, because look, let's be honest, you know, there it takes a long time to get a doctorate it does. and you're almost finished. Yeah. And I, I, I went through that process and we, I mean, it, it was agonizing. Very much so. And thinking is tough. Yeah. It's really tough. And and the other thing that's fascinating is as soon as we get into that world, then we're having conversations like this and they're yeah. enlivening and <laughs> yeah, yeah. generating and yeah. it's like a great, you know, this yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Although it is there it, you said it, I really think that inaccessibility. Yeah. And yeah. what we're talking about in black theology or or yeah. any there, there's when you deal with power hierarchies, that's part of the the barrier to entry. It is. Is is I don't have a language. I don't have the means by which to get it. At the real baseline, we're talking about in early development, mm. if I don't raise my children in a way that helps them interact with the culture at large, mm. they'll suffer. They need to understand how to look people in the eye, yeah. how to shake hands, yeah. how to articulate themselves, how to deal with their emotions, how mm. to regulate themselves, how to soothe, mm. you know, how to study, how to, without those, processes you got a barrier to entry yeah and and, I, and and am i tracking you think there when we're talking about communities kind yeah. of because i i think that that's kind yeah. of just a, i guess i'm just thinking out loud there because it's i just imagine you know rudy and i were talking about homelessness and mm. you know so if we really look at communities that that are under-resourced i really like yeah. that that yeah. term communities that are under-resourced when you're looking at 
trying to be resourceful. Right. I bet there's a lot of learned helplessness and powerlessness yeah. that exists. Yeah. And, and so I, do you have any thoughts there? Can, can we dive into? Yeah, something? I, th I think like, so I'm, re I'm really, if I think if, if I, if I were to articulate sort of where I think my passions lie right now at this stage is in that work of sort of translation and making accessible uh, the inaccessible in ways that are that's meaningful. So part of the great meaning I derive right now in life is being in, in, in conversation in community with folks who uh, push me to do that work. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, because it's like you say, unless we're able to uh, take all this jargon away and say, okay, now what does this mean for the everyday struggle? If it just, if I can just say it a different way, like, like even right where I live right now, some of my neighbors, like I see them all the time, like, hey, Clay, what's going on, man? What's going on, man? And I realize sometimes, you know, I just, I just talk normal, just like, what's going on, man? Good, you know? And they, if they'll ask me questions, like, hey, and, Surprisingly, you know, I guess I've been living there so long. I don't ever talk about what I do or how I do it. They just know, right? And they're like, "So, man, what are you teaching over there? What are you doing?" You know, they guess whatever. Like, man, you know, I'm likewise just trying to talk about or have conversations about how how the hell we can just make this struggle real, man. What's going on in life, man? And so, if we can figure out a way, and this is what some of me and my friends are trying to do, is figure out a way to create spaces where um, a range of folk can come together and have meaningful conversations that didn't get um, too sort of like, you know, pie in the sky. How do you just bring the different experiences and, and knowledges of people together that can make a difference? But then so for the purpose of doing though, right? So a lot of our concerns, we're, we're concerned about intersectional justice issues, right? How do you make a difference in these communities? Uh, but it starts with creating a type of social and intellectual community where persons are able to authentically be themselves and show up how they are and to exchange with each other uh, in a variety of ways. That type of creating those type of authentic spaces are hard to do where somebody can come in and be as Christian as they want to be or as agnostic or atheist as they want to be or as academic or non-indigenous as they want to do. But what you do is create a certain community commitments to say, hey, these are some things that are going to have to be established and everybody's valued here in this space, right? Um, and so, yeah, John, I think, you know, I think there are ways that, you know, therapy, like you got what you do here, like, does that. Like, I envy sometimes you guys, like, man, man, they get to come in and talk to people all day, man, that's wonderful, man, you know? Because you're able, at least in, in your environment, to at least create a space where I'm having these conversations with folks we can just take the mirrors. We can go anywhere we want to go. That's got to be like so fulfilling at the end of the day, right? But at the same time, I recognize that for the people I live next to over there in Third Ward, man, they're too busy just trying to put food on the table, right? To to even ever experience that or like even think about how to come to do that. And so that's the, the tussle that I think keeps me ambivalent about life and keeps me... I think being and not being in spaces at the same time, if that makes sense. It does. I mean, do you buy into the Maslow look, the hierarchy, you know, where you can get to self-actualization once all those, because, because my, I'll just bat this around for a second. Okay. 
you started talking about mystical experience. Yeah, yeah. Right? But then our first five minutes, you yeah. were 14 years old. Yeah, yeah. Now, you probably didn't have that language. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So here you are talking about being in an under-resourced community, yet you're having these openings. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So I'll, I'll say like, Part of my own constitution, I think, you know, I've always been a deeply introspective person and not, I go on these sort of mental flights, right? And I still dream of things that are possible. And for me, like this dreaming for me is just about, is I strip it all down to, is community really possible, mm -hmm. right? Is a sort of authentic community that a variety of religious and mystical traditions think of as kingdom, heaven, whatever, is that possible? And what's, possible for us as humans to realize that uh, in the social context in which we are. And so now when I think about my experiences over uh, when I was younger, or when I came earlier into my religious experiences, I used to have these experiences. A lot of these experiences I used to have listening to music. I used to have these flights of fancy listening to NWA sometimes, right? Like, um, and so now I think what binds me mystically with sort of friends like matter because we still have these man what if mm. we could somehow debunk this shit and that and that kind of stuff keeps us forging for it because the truth of the matter is our relationship is deeply like you know um improbable like there's no way in the world you could have told me that one of my best friends would be a white guy at this stage in my life never would have fucking happened like especially not that would have never happened especially given the context in which we met, I was really clear on, look, struggles for black racial justice are not going to be watered down in any way. So if I'm going to have a conversation with you, you just know I'm not going to be assimilationist in my dialogue with you. That's just not how I roll, right? One, I just, I'm just naturally not inclined to that. But just two, because when we first met, he used to have this language about, yeah, man, you know what's going on? And, you know, I'm going to be your friend. And I'm like, First of all, I don't think you know what the fuck friendship is. Like, you know what I'm saying? Do you know what a friend is? Like, you know what I'm saying? And so we just had these conversations and- You been talk, you want to talk about that? Huh? Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> I so like, it. It, it was weird. Like, so me- and, <laughs> That's great, man. Yeah, so we had this, like, and Matt is a delightful guy. But at the time, like, I was like, yeah, whatever. Like, you know, everybody can be delightful at first. I don't mean anything. <laughs> and so we, we, so we, how we really met was that we had this visual or whatever. And Matt comes up to me afterwards. Cause like it was not pleasant for it was pleasant for for me and my friends but uh but for persons in that room it probably wasn't that pleasant because we had totally disoriented like the way they come in thing but anyway right after this matt come like so hey man you know um got this podcast man thing when you we're gonna, gonna come up I'm like sure so the next day we go on this podcast and we start talking about a range of stuff and then we go to dinner and we have like three glasses of wine three hours later uh we talked like superficially at first and then we started talking about it in detail and and then a experience happened. I said to him, I said, Well, Matt, like, I don't know you, but I heard this about you, man. Is this true? And he's like, Okay, well, cool, you know. And from there, um, what we committed to beyond anything else was was it possible to look at it at least and deconstruct and then keep construct something that could be valuable for a core group of folks, uh, mostly white, but other folks who were interested in racial justice, right? We said, yeah. 
and a friendship emerged along the way. Trump got elected. We started stopped talking for a while because all kind of shit was breaking out of my mind, all that kind of stuff, his mind. Then we end up taking this trip together, going over, over to Europe or whatever. And and what ended up happening is in the midst of just struggling to see whether this can work or not, a real friendship emerged, mm -hmm. right? Um and so it was it was really improbable and, and unlikely. Uh but then what began to happen was because of our friendship, other communities that we were connected to individually began to come around each other too and be like, let's try this out, see what's going on. You know what I mean? And now a whole we instantiated a whole organization around it. A group of over twenty something folk now who are struggling for not only racial justice, but committed to at least in our internal core of establishing a type of community ethic and existence amongst each other. Uh, that values each individual is non-hierarchical, that works collaboratively with each other, that appreciates the ingeniousness of each individual and figures out ways in arrangement to allow person to do what they do the best, right? Uh, while not while keeping uh, a type of uh, core around it, that strong ethical core around it, strong enough not to be broken, right? And so uh, that's what we strive to do now. And so it's, it's been really meaningful. Um, and now we just figure out what's next uh, as we go. We recently did a presentation at AAR together around that issue. Like, what does it mean for academics and community activists and organizers to um, think together and work together? Uh, we, we created some custom curriculum around now about whiteness, one's about social transformation, one's about community organizations, one specifically called is around, around race and theological imagination, talking about mm. how. So we created that curriculum. And so um, these things have become like really important for us, even as I still think through this stuff in my own work um, and dissertation, like, wow. I mean, at the same time, I just got through um, TA and for a course in religion and Black Lives Matter on, on campus. So I'm, all I see is I st I'm still engaged in conversations now that I've been engaged in since I was a kid. I'm just like still thinking about it more broadly, some kind of ways, some types of ways and more uh, academic jargony ways, but but I'm still engaged in this common struggle of trying to figure out what does it mean to be human, to be good, to be black in a society that sort of labels me as, as such, right? And then also what does it mean for me to transcend that in relationship to others, whether that's with Matt or with you or with other folks, what does it mean then to, and how does that sort of challenge my own sort of religious struggle, right? And how do we as as humans acknowledge our differences, not try to squander them, but how do we live in equal relationship to each other? Um, and that's difficult to do. Yeah, it's difficult to do, yeah. man. <laughs> well, let's, let's dive into your uh, dissertation. Okay. If we can. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's so much there that I want to, I want, I, I'm aware of our time and I want to be able to at least go into dissertation. I want okay. to leave plenty of time for that because there's a lot you just said that we could yeah. dive into. And we don't have to talk about this. I don't care about it. It is. It's, well, but, but I am curious. Yeah. yeah. What you're just, just kind of basically where we started, you know, I'm yeah, thinking yeah. about how, how that process for me, I get it. It's, it's finished now. And so you, you know, you kind of go, okay, like I, I, I did that, but yeah. I got something out of doing it. Yeah that yeah. is the real nugget yeah. and part of what i found in mind was religion and yeah. in yeah. a much broader sense you're referencing james yeah, and, Young yeah, yeah. and that's the kind of world i was eliotti you know yeah okay yeah, yeah so so 
I'm just, I, yeah, maybe getting into some of that kind of academic intellectual okay. containment. Yeah, yeah. These three moves you talked about earlier. Yeah, yeah. What's the process like for you? Uh, the or what is the, what is the process of your dissertation? What oh, you the do? process of it. Yeah. Oh, well, um, other than a general structural process of comps and all that kind of stuff. But I think now, the process now is, so first chapter starts off talking, laying, laying the theoretical and methodological groundwork for... Um, for the dissertation. So overall, the dissertation is uh, a project in African-American religion, theorizing the nature and meaning of it. And I theorize uh, it, it more generally to be a basic struggle for identity, right? Mm. So I use the category identity to really stand for what we've been talking about, right? different significations, right? How black folks have tried to represent in history. Uh, they're all historically contingent for me. They're all locally uh, contextualized for me, and I'm just saying that uh, black folks have tried over history to represent and identify themselves in ways that stays off this notion of black alienation, alienation and non-belonging, basically is what I'm saying, and I just use Patterson for that. And so what I walk through in that first chapter is um, I talk about how Orlando Patterson uses this in comparative slavery systems, because this sort of metaphorical what like social scientists talk about what happens is uh, the type of symbolic authority sources of authority so Weber has this favorite notion of like you know uh charisma law whatever Ooh, these are the sources of authority language, right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but patterson says well you know I, I i agree with Weber to an extent you know uh, but it's an aspect of tradition i think that he says that that really is a true source of, of, of true cultural authority. And that is um, sort of the symbolic authority of traditions, right? How, if in some kind of way you can establish what's good, what's right, what's true and moral in some kind of symbolic order that keeps power in check in spite of the arrangement. So he, he appeals back to Plato and talk about how um, enslavers how is it possible for enslavers who were about 20 folk were able to enslave over 400 people, right? When they were totally outnumbered. Well, intellectually, if you able them to like bind in some kind of way, this arrangement that demeans them was somehow right. How do you do that? You establish, you appeal to a higher type of mythical, uh, spiritual order that sort of establishes this for folk, right? And long before him, Du Bois was talking about African-American spiritual strivings as well. For him, the spiritual strivings was a way to kind of like uh, these black bodies trying to say that, look, we're able to have our own sort of type of cultural genius and creation in this world, against which Du Bois has experience when he talks about this first feeling he recognized when his blackness was a problem. You know, how does it feel to be a problem in this world? So, uh, so I use this this notion of social death and talk about how it still manifests itself religiously speaking. So uh, there are these rituals and in, in culture that continue to kind of show and signify that these bodies are less meaningful than others, whether it's hypercriminalization of black bodies, whether it's black death, whether it's uh, housing practices, whether it's in education, right? The, so what I say, I walk through a sort of current sociological history of how social death is still an operative, operative, operating thing that's happening, whether it's media constructions over uh, 
he's a big guy. How whether you know police use that, politicians use that to kind of reference there these codes, right? There's a coding in the cultural logic that says, look, there's a way that we still can signify these bodies as well. So I walk through this tradition, tying it to a lot of those passions, notion of social death to take about. This is the reason why I'm theorizing that African-American religion is really still about this response to stave off these social death notifications. So for black folk, especially after their time of emancipation and after slavery, we're busy about trying to figure out, okay, how do we now fit into this larger American society so this whole black respectability movement came in we want to dress ourselves a different way we got to behave in different ways we got to be good black christians we got to be so i walk through this history and say why that's important then i situate that within uh the social scientific understanding of religion uh using you know really durkheim to an extent but also also uh, combining that some sort of psychoanalytic perspectives as well mm -hmm. talk about development then i move on to say okay based on everything i just said uh, here's how I'm defining religious identity. They are complex, triadic things. They are definitely what I consider to be social cultural products in that tradition, but they contain a complexity to them and that they are social, psychological, and embodied in nature. And I use uh, the psychological aspect to talk about the mythical intellectual, right? And so uh, that's what I do in that first chapter. And then second, I say, so what I want to do is... Uh, Though there's been a discussion about the variety of African-American traditions, if we understand African-American religious struggle more broadly, sociologically, to understand that there are responses to signifying notions of social death, how can we investigate further investigate these outside of just what's been overrepresented in Black Protestant traditions? I'd like to suggest that, hey, we can look at different modes of identity and orientation in Black community for meaning. Black Greek culture, they emerged at the beginning of the 20th century uh, on college campuses because of social isolation there, but there's a way in which they do the same thing, right? They establish these sacred objects and they engage in type of embodiments and symbolic movement through movements and letters and all this kind of stuff. And I said, what was more important, however, is how we should view uh, the current black freedom movement struggle. So this moves now to chapter two, one, two, chapter three of how black, we can look at black freedom struggle as a type of religious struggle as well they relate to a, a type of history of the black radical tradition, right? Going back to the black power movement and other kind of stuff. And there's still several symbolics in ways that they establish sacred meaning in society for folks as well, right? Then uh, the last chapter, really chapter five, as I said, based on that, let me uh, project some future directions of study. What if we looked at some other aspects to look at how blacks are struggling for religious meaning in ways that's not necessarily attached to traditional modes of religion that we think of, but other ways, whether it's through music, whether it's through food, whether it's through whatever, right? And so in substance, what I'm doing is just saying, look, um, making Black Lives Matter, same thing I say is what religious struggle is, is really uh, a type of struggle for contemporary African-American identity, right? Ways in which we show up in places and spaces in the world that allow us to authenticate who we are in this space. Yes. Christianity does contain one language of meaning for religious struggle, but my claim, like many others have claimed before, is not the only way in which it, it happens. And if we understand religion and spirituality that way, I suggest, then we can uh, come to appreciate difference in meaning making um, in ways that allow us to better come to appreciate what being human means, right? And 
an intellectual tradition that situates itself on top of people and religious traditions, whether it's uh, whether it's Freud who talked about cultural production, whether it's Feuerbach, all these folks have thought about it. Uh, but I think what African-American religion as a form of black studies does to that is not only complicate, but also expand those meanings to a particular experience of folk, right? Uh, they weren't the only population that has been enslaved in the history of the world. However, their unique uh, instancing of being enslaved in American society does create different type of things, right? What does the auction, auction, auction blocks and lynching mean? How do they have analogous things going on today? And so if it's different today, if the way that black bodies get coded is different than they did in times of slavery and segregation, what does it mean for the coding of black bodies now in this era of Black Lives Matter that's important for their religious meaning making? And that's what I'm trying to uncover in my dissertation is what does now suggest about black religious meaning making? What is the correlate? The correlate? What's, yeah, what's the way that that's done? I mean, because yeah. we're, we're talking about I don't know. I mean, a, a a very overt and conscious racism, but also the kind of underbelly that's unconscious yeah, and yeah. that masquerades as whatever. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm colorblind. I, I don't. Yeah. I don't see color. You know. That that's a great question. Like so, just as uh, different groups work to sort of um, free themselves from the constraints and sort of suppression of power, right? Power also adjusts itself. Uh, over society differently, which is why I argue there has to be an analysis of a variety of religious forms because power is always going to transmute itself to continue to encapsulate certain bodies. And so I argue why there's a constant, why you can look at black religious movement as a type of social movement is that uh, likewise, African-Americans or blacks are always going to change modes, right? So what happens to so the reason why black liberation struggle and black lives matter is different now, whether they emphasize decentralized leadership, this sort of free expression of a range of identities, LGBTQ, I feel, who are not going to be stifled like they did back in the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. right? Now they're going to be more overt in certain ways. All of these are adjustments to modern contexts, right? So just as uh, modern whiteness works to sort of shift and change the registers in which it suppresses certain bodies of color, so do folks of color. And so, right. the, so what my dissertation is arguing is that, yeah, Black religious struggle has to be expand and become different now because the way that black folks decide to code stuff is totally different. A lot of them are rejecting this shit now. They're just saying like, no, I'm, I may be spiritual religious, I may be none of them damn things. Or like, why is it, or you can't capsule me. So what I'm saying is that that complexity is what needs to be analyzed more sociologically and how that happened. Because my argument is that although it's complex in these three ways, it's also still a sociological type of reality phenomenon for me. It's all about sociality for me because the way in which I think about thing has to do with um, how my mother raised me in a certain way or what kind of like theories I'm attracted to now and how these sort of social spaces kind of form my ideation and how I think about these things. And so all of this still to me is, is a way that can be contained in that. But I also leave some room for it to kind of go beyond that too, right? Um, but that's just not what I'm up to in this project. In this project, I'm saying I'm concerned about how one sociality sort of constructs this for us, bracketing off whatever else may be there for folk that I don't want to sort of reduce for them, right? Mm. So, um, yeah, that's the difficulty of it all. What a project, man. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, and honestly, if I'm honest, man, it's a, the project itself, in a way, is death-dealing for me. I want to admit that, that, 
it's it's taking a lot from me, man. It's 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 but at the same time, both like rewarding, but at the same time, it's uh I was talking to one of my colleagues, there's a way in which you can relate to this, that that the the dissertation project, at least the graduate school process, kind of robs you of a bit of your humanity sometimes. Mm. Uh because it is like it is a big ritual process, right? And so the type of isolation and anxiety it, it breeds and sometimes the type of grappling with different forms of depression you have to go through in it. Like, it's a real thing, man. And so I recognize how, how people come on the other side of it now where I am. Like, man, I'm glad it's over. But I recognize why, like, yo, I can see why, especially for folk who are structurally disadvantaged, ain't many folk going through that stuff. Because, man, look, one, you don't have the material leisure, but then the kind of psychic shit it takes you through is real um and so my hope man is that the, and this is where i do remain hopeful here this one more mystic side comes out my hope is that at the end of all this i'm able to look back at this experience and say ah that's why i had to do that mm. i think you will i hope so man I, um to be honest if i'm honest with you there are times i'm really skeptical and cynical about shit now uh but i'm hoping that after this next six months or so, putting my face down, killing myself, I can look back and say, oh, okay, that was, that was, I can either see why or it was worth it, you know? Uh, because right now, the more and more I, I learn about the reality of, uh, of our existence and our engagements, the more and more uh, sad shit seems sometimes. And um, I find joy, though, in some of the stuff that's happened, though. Like, so... Today for me is a synchronistic moment, right? So people like you and Matt and other folk who I just happened to meet along the way still is like, ah, oh, okay. So even though I'm like really in this other fucking world right now, I'm still having these significant encounters with folk along the way mm. that could that could mean something grander that I had no idea. So think of, if you think about my friendship with Matt, I just went to an event to speak. I didn't know a whole damn community can emerge from that, right? Yeah. And so that's what I'm hoping at the end of this stuff is like, I can look back and be like, ah, oh, okay. Now it makes it, okay, that makes sense to me now, you know? Yeah. But now I'm just rambling now. That's good. Yeah. I, I, the, the thought that I had a while ago was that um, there's something really important about meandering. Mm. Yeah. And that's why I like this process. It gives yeah. us permission to set a structure up to meander. Yeah, you yeah, know, we may yeah. go have a beer or something, and we'll definitely meander. But yeah, in this, it's a different social space, right, and right. it it kind of this kind of elevates things. But then you forget about it. Yeah, and it, yeah. I don't know. It's been really fascinating to pay yeah. attention to. Yeah, I just don't know how you, how you go back and edit all this shit, man. That's a lot. Oh, it's a lot of fun. That's a lot of work, man. I don't like to edit much of this. <laughs> like, no, I I like to leave it. You <laughs> know, like. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I like to leave it. I try. I try to leave as much as possible. Okay. Okay. So the just a a couple of because we'll we'll kind of close things out. I'm curious okay. about um two things. Uh, the difference between America and Black America. Hmm. Hmm. And then anything else that we're leaving out. So yeah, yeah. So that's interesting that they're they're. Folks who have thought about the fall as always have always talked about well even the boys who I often talked about talks about this double consciousness right this this type of uh, 
sensibility in in, uh, in Black Americans that there is a bicultural type of existence, right? One in which you're trying to carve out uh, who you are in Black America than who you are more broadly in society as you engage in other spaces, right? And what those differences are. And so it's, it's, it's impossible to, I think, divorce American reality from a broader cultural struggle itself, right? I mean, I think, you know, this whole notion of coming into some type of American identity as early folk were separating themselves from from the early English and they're trying to establish themselves and um, becoming the artist. So I think American existence itself is, I mean, it's this great, I mean, like Wes and other folks have said this great democratic experiment, right? Where how these all these peoples come together and define and organize for themselves what it means to exist as a people. Um, and I think, um, I don't know, I, I think, it's hard for me to talk more broadly as American because of my particularity. Uh, yet at the same time, I recognize that it's inescapable, it has always been inescapable, these two nodes of either trying to assimilate into a broader American type of existence and also maintain and strive for understanding what, you know, one particularity means in this broader substructure because beyond the dyads of black and white, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. But it just seems that the, in the case that in the United States of America, um, these dyads have been made to be more, um, have become more reified in, any, in a lot of contexts, right? I mean, this country more than any other one has made its um, sort of mark in society based on establishing these types of cultural ethnic differences and ways along the lines of black and white that makes it hard to just call oneself an American. And so mm -hmm. it's like, it's so hard to do that, right? Although uh, other communities find pressures exacting against them to try to do so, it's kind of hard to because I mean, you look at the current lot of political structures and context of the history of this country, the dominant representation of Americanness has been whiteness, right? And so it's and so it makes it so hard. And so what happens is when you say America or you say anything relatively normative, it really gets implied in such way. What does it mean to kind of for you to fit into a larger white American society? Um and I don't, and I don't know, man. I, I think, I think America for me comes in context when I'm in classrooms and there's a diverse group of students that we're trying to engage around ideas. America happens to me when uh, I'm in context with uh, a variety of folk of different. We're all trying to struggle to figure out how do we all just get along and. Uh, in the same way, America happens when we start considering the plight of what's good for this country and healthcare and all these kind of things. When I start thinking about broader notions of livable wages and stuff and how we as a country have engaged in so many imperious acts across mm -hmm. the globe, right? So th those broader conversations of about how we exercise power is when I have conversations about America. 
but I don't know, man. It's yeah. hard. It's hard not to almost because as as I was listening to you talk about that, I was thinking about how America is a signifier for a, the the broad a broader power. Yeah, yeah. And really, we can. I mean, that's human. Yeah. And so we're there, but there is something that I I, I couldn't help but think about, which is that dyad between America and black America Mm. really does to me present a both andedness Mm -hmm. and that I really like, I want to get my hands around a both and, and and I, and I think that's really the, 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 the great suffering is of uh, quote, just a, just, just American Mm. is that it tends to insinuate a single-mindedness. Right. right. And when it doesn't include the both-handedness, yeah. we see what happens. It really suffers. Yeah. And so, so I think that's in part kind of the the struggle and the suffering of the entire experiment that you were talking about is that mm. when, because this is psychological, you know, when we get one-sided. Yeah that's where we suffer the greatest. Yeah. So we need these dynamics in place to chisel away at and humble the, the power dynamic. Yeah. And so, th- so that's what I think of when I think about the, hmm. any of those kind of dominant structures and everything that is kind of surrounded by it. It's such yeah. a, a healthy and healing endeavor. And of course the, let's be American for a second. The, the sickness of an American experiment occurs when it tries to push out the otherness that's actually included in its in its wholeness. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that doesn't make any sense. No, but. it does. I mean, it, it's hard to talk about a monolithic America, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's hard for me, at least, let me say it that. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I think there are ways that those who are part of the political structure have to learn a language that does that. And so I, I, there are ways in which I admit I admire how Obama was able to do that, mm-hmm. right? To carve out a, a broader American narrative and create these stories around it. But but America itself, right, is this patchwork of peoples. But, but, that, but that patchwork is not often represented, I, I find, right? Um, and that's, I think, my own struggle with creating notions of America is, that, is when I see America, I don't, I don't see the the great possibilities of what it could represent. Oftentimes, um, yeah, yeah. I had a thought there that I want to be able to get. Oh yeah. Um, I don't know where this comes from. I, I, I think this to sit around and have a conversation about race makes people really uncomfortable. Mm, yeah, yeah. Because and I, I'm interested in what you'd say here, which is that so I think in part people are really scared to think out loud for fear of offending somebody. Yeah. And so people stay kind of self-contained. 
mean, that's that's what I was thinking as you were talking about Matthew and those conversations that you guys were having, and, mm-hmm. where it's like, well, you're just throwing it out there, yeah, yeah. and that's what makes it happen, and yeah. that the the glue, you know, the glue comes from just putting it out there and being okay having difficult conversations and trying not to be concerned about offending somebody and trying not to be offended, but right, trying to say like, right. let's, let's really get in the muck and have some, sure. We're going to have tough conversations, but we really need to. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's just a thought that Yeah. I wish more people would have conversations where they may feel a bit uncomfortable. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, so even like today, as I think about our, our conversation today, for me, it's not necessarily been a conversation about race and as much as it's been a conversation about my thoughts and who I am, mm-hmm. really, right? But I bring a particularity to that conversation. And I think a larger question I have for those who would say, man, we shouldn't have any conversations about race is to think about what privileges are forced them to not to have to have that conversation or think about it. If it doesn't touch your life, in a way that matters for your daily existence, that's that's great. But I mean, yeah, I agree that these they're these fictive things, whether it's race or whatever. Um, <laughs> but at the same way, these these fictive categories have really significant implications in, on people's lives. And, and so, uh, I'm thinking about friends who would, if I have a conversation about race, friends who are, or, or persons who I'd be in conversation who would push back on me and talk about. Well, yeah, talk about the API community. You got to talk about Latinx community. Yeah, there's a variety of um, community conversations to be had. But I think the avoidance of these conversations, I mean, I don't know how that's helpful. Because whenever we avoid them, we also implicitly suggest that um, there are racialized conversations that are more important. Because I would argue that it's almost impossible to not have a racialized conversation. Hmm. It may not be explicit, right? but whatever framework we use to have a conversation, race is embedded in it, uh, or at least race has been um, codified through it some kind of way, whether we talk psychologically, sociologically, whatever these things are, you know, there are ways, there's a, a mode of understanding that at its base um, was constructed by certain communities, by particular communities. And we we are all wrestling with a whole bunch of language games and trying to figure out how to just say, hey, what's up? You know? Uh, yeah, I um, want to know you. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. I want to know you. I want to yeah. be known. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, I don't know, John, man. We It's a difficult thing, but uh, we'll figure it out somehow. Yeah. What yeah. are we leaving out? I don't know. I think we've talked about all kinds of stuff. I agree. I think we've talked about everything. Cleve, thanks a lot, man. Thanks for having me, man. I hope something you'll be able to use to make sense out of this stuff. I already have. Yeah, 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 yeah. See the signs, y'all. See the signs, y'all. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not a serious. Check it out. He would have got through if he'd have made me listen. I thought I knew, but never paid attention. We saw the signs, felt something was gonna happen. When your homies crying out for help, you should back them. But draw the line and beating into self-destruction. And well, you gotta be humble or we can't tell you nothing. To hell you going back, heaven again in sin. I will be condemned till you are redeemed, supreme judged, overseen at the foot of the king.
king drug through mud, sweat, blood, and water to know the art of survival. Hard times for us to stay right on track. Over your shoulder and constantly looking back. I sensed a disturbance in the force. An emergence of events taking course. A presence moving closer to the light's essence. A message that would serve as a life lesson. See the signs, y'all. Read between the lines. Come on, come one of a kind. Meeting of the minds. Birds of a feather flock. Forever rock. Birds of a feather flock. Never forgot. Birds of a feather flock. Forever rock. Birds of a feather flock. Never forgot. My dogs of a like mind. And when I call, it's the right time and it's on. Especially if it's 911. We build and we work like windmills to circle the globe. And we Hershey chocolate, Rocky Road, and blow major. One love to all flavors. For all of my homies, I do favors and blaze Vegas. LA's latest tragedies are as follows. My niggas are dying and not coming back tomorrow. I'm overcome by sorrow, feel I'm going overboard. But kill not, lest ye be tested in war. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Kinfolk are crying, hitting the floor. Both knees, please, God, bring my homie back so we can sip cognac. If only I had a moon in his rising of the zodiac. If only that could be true, we'd reunite. And blaze some more sticky under the pale moonlight. See the signs, y'all, read between the lines. Come on, come one of a kind, meaning of the minds. Birds of a feather flock, forever rock. Birds of a feather flock, never forgot. Birds of a feather flock, forever rock. Birds of a feather flock, never forgot. I'm on point and I'm on post for the onslaught. And the bomb dropped on the youngsters, we're moving onward. We're getting down to our last resources. They suspended the gang task forces. It's mass morbid. A carnival of the Roman type and so sick. Carnage, the bloody shit they getting away with. Me and my buddies can't take it. We looking to vacate the premises and retaliate relentlessly and the war goes on endlessly. Remember what happened to Malcolm and Kennedy? The MLK conspiracy and Peter Tosh Bob Marley we hardly seeing through the smoke screening they doing. I'm steaming cause of what they got brewing. Elohim be knowing I'm viewing. I'm a third eye bird. I mountain peak influenced by the herbal belief in God when he speaks the few men word that a journey will flock together who's in who's out whether fair or stormy weather see the signs y'all read between the lines come on come one of a kind meeting of the minds birds of a feather flock forever rock birds of a feather flock never forgot birds of a feather flock forever rock birds of a feather flock never forgot